You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Good afternoon, this is John Corr and... Bishop, Brother C.L. Mitchell. Hello. Hello. Happy Friday to you, brother. How are you? I'm wonderful. Happy Friday to you. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. It is sunny and 86 degrees outside in Phoenix, and it feels feels great. I, I despise the heat. Well, I do too. I don't want 100 degree weather yet, but it's February. It's, that is true. It's it, too early. It's February 12th, and we have 85 degree weather. I, I suppose um, that comparatively, right, with you're, where you're the gonna... nation has been, that yeah. that's good for us. Yeah. I suppose I will. I will, in all things, uh, give thanks to God for this is the uh, the will of God concerning. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I see you still have your. Uh, listen, I had this. I had the short sleeve shirt on today. Going to break that out. You know, I love long sleeves. I love the cold weather because I get to wear long sleeve shirts. And here in Phoenix. Not very often you get to wear long sleeves, so but today I had to wear short sleeves and take advantage of the beautiful weather here in Phoenix. So absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so anyway, we're um, we're excited to be here. Uh, excited uh, for uh, you who are listening to join in uh, in our conversation. We uh, are actually are, are two good friends who who like to talk theology, like to talk about the Bible, and we love to see what God speaks through that and encourage us through his word. Uh, we have been discussing uh, and looking into the book of Ruth, and uh, we are in the midst of that of that discussion. And uh, the book of Ruth, which maybe some people may be asking why of all the books in the Bible, well, one, it's short, um, but of course, the, at the rate we go, uh, short doesn't mean anything because we take our time. Uh, we like to uncover the truth uh, very slowly. But also there's some practical, a lot of practical things in, in the story, and the characters that are in this uh, story are, I think, are relatable to, to some people, uh, to all of us. And also there's uh, pictures and types or illustrations of, of Christ in the church in the story as well. So we had been talking about Ruth, talking about uh, Ruth and her return with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And both Naomi and Ruth have been widowed. Naomi lost her, her husband and her two sons. And Ruth decides to go back with her and um, devote herself, actually, to, to Naomi and her people without any expectation of something else coming along. And we are in the chapter two of Ruth where... Ruth happens to go to a field owned by a man named Boaz. And Boaz is introduced to us in the beginning of chapter two, sort of as the hero, as he will be, as one of the heroes of the story, that will come and uh, help and be used by God, unknowingly to him, be used by God to turn things around for for Ruth and for Naomi as well. Uh, In this story, God is sort of behind the scenes uh, he is mentioned on the people's lips, uh, and he is mentioned in some commentary as far as his providential guidance. But for the most part, uh, he is working through the people in the story. 
And what's exciting about that is the fact that that's not really how normal life is. You know, it's not like you hear, or maybe, maybe Brother CL, maybe you hear voices from God every day or every Thursday, but I don't. <laughs> Most of life is lived with by faith, where you're not really certain which way to go and you're not certain which direction to go. And you just trust that God is working through that and working through circumstances that on the surface don't look so so good but god is always at work and there's nothing that is thrown into our lives that can throw him off course um so we left off with chapter two and maybe we can read a few verses just to get a little started here um and ruth chapter two it says now i'm going to just start with verse one now, Naomi had a kinsman of her late of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Uh, and Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And so she departed and went and uh, gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his servants who were in, who was in charge, or a servant who was in charge of the reapers, uh, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers answered and said, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now, and she has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my mates. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from the, what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him why have i found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since i am a foreigner and boaz answered and said to her all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, and this is sometime later, come here and that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she ate or sat beside the reapers and she he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left when she rose to glean boaz commanded his servants saying let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her and also you shall purposely pull out some of grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her so she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley and then she goes back to her mother-in-law and has a conversation with her mother-in-law. Now, that scene is full of awesomeness, you might say. Yes. Um, and so let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. I believe 
<clears throat> on last week, we, um, I believe on last week that we left off at verse number 10. We were going to pick we, up there. We, we did, but let's, 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 let's work ourselves into that. Cause that to me is when I look at verse 10 and, the, and just to, if you're driving in your car or if you don't have your Bible in front of you, verse 10 to me is the one that leaps off the page. Is the one it's the one that that just kind of sing, sings and it is her response to what he's done for her. She says then and it says she fell down on her face. She's literally goes on her knees, puts her face to the ground. It's a, it's um, significant there, which we'll talk about in a second. And then she says this: Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, a foreigner? So, so if we're working there, yes. pretextually, uh, at verse 8, what you have is this request uh, via Boaz for her not to, in fact, leave his field, but to continue to glean in his field. Now, this is an interesting uh, invitation on behalf of Boaz because this is not an invitation that is going to occur just one time, right. nor a couple of times. Uh, this is going to be over a series of months. So it's going to be over the months that encompass the barley framework, right. and it's going to be over the months that uh, pertain to the wheat right. framework. And so he's actually making an invitation, indeed an insistence, that will carry over for several months. Okay. Um, um, I, I think that's interesting because um, um, as he's doing this, she recognizes uh, that he's not just making a positive statement, as we discussed last week, but he's making a negative statement. Do not go there, but remain here. And his, his desire for her to remain where she is currently, namely in his field, is not selfishly oriented, but it is graciously oriented as is going to be borne out in the post text, namely in verse number 10. Well, your, your first point, let's just talk about that. Your first point being that this isn't a one-time event. You know, we're reading this here not realizing that there's there's a season of harvesting to, to to do there's the barley harvest then the wheat harvest which tells me that his his kindness he's showing to her isn't a fluke is not a one time do this because it makes me feel good now but he's actually committed to her this kindness of allowing her to glean in his field now we haven't mentioned to the fact that he's going to allow her to glean with his maidservants because that's another kindness he shows to her. But the fact this is a, this is perhaps part of his character, that it's a, um, um, he's I don't a want gracious to, man. He's, he's a gracious man. He is, he's, he's, he, that is part of his character. Um, okay, go on. So if you're looking at the text then, um, uh, he says to her in verse nine, let your eyes be on the field, which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. And now, um, Dr. Block from uh, Wheaton right. uh, University uh, in Chicago sees this as a negative statement, and I want to articulate um, his take on this before I um, uh, give my position on it, because I have a bit different position, and I've um, um, uh, discussed this with Dr. Block personally. 
Um, did you get his autograph when you did that? <laughs> no, I didn't get okay. his autograph. Okay, I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, uh, he sees this as uh, Poloni Almoni. Right. Uh, he sees this as a statement that is indicating the negative situation. German sits in Labum, the situation that is going on in the in the culture of that day, which he deems at this particular point to be of a negative nature, because women were vulnerable in that culture and because a lot of the workers were rough and sometimes in their character deplorable. He sees this as a prime opportunity for her to be taken advantage of, dare I say sexually taken advantage of. And so in his commentary, he raises a question. And I think he's raising a legitimate question. Right. I don't know that he's raising it rhetorically with an insinuated answer. Uh, his question is, could this be the first um, aspect of women's protection rights or, or something of this nature? Right. Um, and in discussion with him, I think he's leaning toward the overall context culturally. Let us speak momentarily to the right. context. Uh, this is happening during the period of judges. Right. And during the period of judges, Israel is certainly not on her best behavior. Uh, she's not altogether Torah observant, as it were. And so we see coming out of the book of Judges where the Benjamites um, have been guilty of sodomistic practices. And uh, this is not a Genesis 19 situation with pagans and uh, Lot, uh, with the people of God versus the people who are Gentilic or Gentile tiles in nature. This is a scenario of the people of God, covenantal children of God, the Benjamites. And after that scene, then we also see a priest uh, who uh, um, allows his concubine to be taken advantage of. So, so he's pointing out the overall context that that is picking up momentum uh, and 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 finding itself in the Book of Ruth chronologically and culturally, so that he suggests there's not much confidence in these words in the field See, I, or in Israel at this time. I, I tend to agree with that because what he, what, and what you're saying is given the time of the judges, if you were, if you were, if you were a single woman, you weren't safe without protection, without a man as your protector. Yes. Um, he, you know, um, and as you point out in the book of judges, how it ends, uh, is not very, very well. Um, so he, he gets, he gets this, his argument, as, as far as sexual harassment, so to speak, protecting her from any kind of advances unwantingly uh, from, from men who may be working in his field or perhaps, you know, going by. So that's perhaps where he's getting his, his understanding or his, his take on it because it's the time of the judges. And... But you disagree with that, is what I'm... <laughs> I, I do. I, I think, and, and as I discussed with Dr. Block in person... That, that the overall situation and disposition of the nation of Yisrael, um, the tribal disposition spiritually, would in fact lean toward that interpretation. However, um, 
chapter two, the earlier verses, would suggest to me that there is something different, not only about Boaz, but something possibly different in the disposition or the character of his workers. As evinced in chapter two, verse four B, may I am be with you is his initial greeting. And they said collectively, it's a plural in the Hebrew text, may I am bless you. There seems to be this insinuation as it were by the author that the grace of God on the um, on the owner of the land Boaz is also indicated in and has trickled down upon the workers to some degree. In other words, outside of the language and verbiage of the foreman, we don't necessarily have a negative sense of those individuals who are at work within his field at that point. So I see from the Hebrew text um, a stronger argument because that pretextual argument comes from the language versus just an uh, imposition of the cultural argument. Okay, so then why... So if, if, if he is assuming that they're safe, is what you're saying, why give the warning, don't touch her? I think... If there's no threat to her, why give the warning, don't touch her? I would not suggest that there is not a threat, but not a sexual harassment threat. Right. I think the threat would be, she's asking two things as articulated in the mouth of the foreman. Number one, allow me to do what is within the norm of the culture, Israeli culture. Number one, allow me to to go behind and, and take um, uh, uh, the corners of the field yeah. and also what is dropped. But secondarily, she says, and allow me to collect from the sheaves, which would have been anti-Torah. That was not normative within the framework of the culture. What's more, he has given her a command not to go to another field. And upon seeing how much she has gathered by his statement of permission and by his allowance of favor, there seems to me to be uh, uh, some insinuation that others may look at that and want to say, no, you are not to in fact take the sheaves. No, you're not in fact to collect that much. And so there seems to be a prohibition saying, I've instructed them not to stop you or prohibit you because they're going to see the favor that you've garnered. They're going to see the excessive amount of barley during barley season and wheat during wheat season. And I want them to know don't stop her. That is as a result of, of my word. What's more, it's consistent with what he does both here now in giving her a certain amount of grain and what he does later. He's giving her a superfluous amount of blessing in barley and wheat. Okay. So we have two. Okay. So what you're saying and what we're discussing, we can go on and on as far as whether this is a sexual thing or not. You're, you're saying is, and I agree with that as well, is that he's protecting her in the sense that Guys, don't bother her. I've given her permission to go and glean here and to take this much. And in fact, I'll give her more than she can right. she can handle. So the question is, you have you have on, on the leading up to verse ten. Verse ten being that that verse that we are hopefully hinging upon as far as her reaction, her response to his kindness. So he shows his kindness to her. Okay, he says, "Go where my maids go." Yes. Um, and then later on, he's actually going to tell his workers, oh, oh, purposely pick some for her and leave them for her. And in fact, in fact he's going to progress even further and send her home um, very full, like with almost too much barley to, car- to carry. But so the question then is, he's a gracious guy. 
but why is he doing this? You know, he's, he's, you know, he could have done this with, he certainly had other visitors to his field. What's, what is it that he is, what is motivating this, this, this man to do this much for her and not just giving her all this grain? He's giving her, he's, there's something else going on than just the amount of grain he's giving her. Absolutely. Because of her response to, in fact, his, her response to him in verse 10 precedes even more grain that he'll give to her. So in verse 10, he, she responds to some kindness that he is showing her. What kind of, what, what, let's get into that because there's something significant. I think as far as, it's more than just giving her grain because he would have given any stranger grain as well or allowed them to glean in his field. So what is it about him? What, what is exactly, what is he doing to her? I think you're absolutely uh, correct, John, that this insinuates something more. And I think in order to arrive at verse number 10, we have to have a wider um, perspective, as it were, on the, the pretext. Uh, remember, again, in chapter number one, and verse number uh, six, that the term in the latter section of the verse, pakad, right. uh, which we've discussed, is employed. And it is insinuated uh, in the earlier uh, section of chapter one, but it is directly stated in this particular area. And the it word pakad is, is to visit, is God to has visit. visit his people. Okay. And here, the insinuation of the visitation is he has visited them in bayit lechem, in the house of bread, with bread, God, with like lechem. Um, whereas in uh, the earlier portions of the verses, he has visited them. It's kind of the divine passive that that there has been a famine in that place and they have gone to a different land. So you have both a positive by insinuation in verse uh, in the earlier verses, but then a, a or rather a negative in the earlier verses where there is a famine and a positive in verse number six where there is the visitation of the Lord. Right. But the question is now, he's going to give her um, the opportunity to go and gain an excess or, or, or an excessive amount of grain, and he's giving her opportunity in the field. So what we're seeing is a general picard or visitation of I am in chapter one, verse number six, but now we're going to see a particular or special visitation by way of grain in chapter number two, and it's going to raise a question. It's going to immediately raise a provisional question on a human scale, on a sociological scale. Why are you being this favorable to me? But it's going to, above that, raise a theological question. Why is God or I am being this gracious to me? So that's what we're getting into as we uh, uh, um, step into verse number 10, both a, both a societal or horizontal question and then a vertical or theological question. Okay, now I answer my question. <laughs> the question is, like, that was really that was really good uh, but my question is why is he showing what he's giving her more than just grain yes and water um what is he doing to or for her because again bec she could have been another stranger and he would have said glean my fields but he says to her, he, he says to her specifically, um, don't go to another field, but 
but stay here and go with my maids. Stay with my maids. Go with my girls. Stay with them. Well, right off the bat, she is, this assumes that she wasn't with them before. This assumes that she was gleaning in another place where her ma where his maids wasn't where where her where his maids were not. In other words, her maids his maids were here and she was over here. Now she, he has moved her to be in that position with his with his mage, which assumes that well his maids are going to have a better pick than she had before. So right off the bat, he's already moved her position to a, a better place, right? That's the first thing. Secondly, it says, and uh, go after them. Uh, and let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from where the servants draw. Now, this means that beforehand she was did not have that privilege of going. In fact, if, if she was a foreigner, she couldn't go to those water jars to get... If she was thirsty, she had to go back into town and draw from the well. But now she doesn't have to do that. So two things right off the bat, he does for her. He kind of moves her to the front of the line, so to speak. He moves her from the back or from the outskirts to now going among the maids to pick. And then now when, when, uh, when, go, when she's thirsty, in fact... Um, she can draw. She can draw, drink water from from where their servants are supposed to drink water, or the water that's uh, uh, drawn for the servants. Those two things tell me a lot. It tells me that she that he doesn't see her as a foreigner. He doesn't see her as an outcast. He sees her as somebody as so important that, that he's going to allow her to be in a better place of privilege, so to speak, in a place where she can get better gleanings, better water. I almost wanted to say better pizza <laughs> at Papa John's, but I'm not going to do no commercial breaks here. But but better, everything's better because of what he does for. He says, you're here, but now I see you as going over here. And that's something that normally you wouldn't do. I'd like to further that microcosmic view, though, of what's going on. Because what we see in this small picture on this, on this uh, uh, horizontal scale is first of all, the 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 narrator is in fact um, giving us a statement of repetition. The book is replete with the idea she's a Moabitess. Exactly. The, the author doesn't want us to miss that, and so she is deliberately to be seen on the outskirts, not just the outskirts exactly communally or socially, but familially. She's seen on the outskirts as such. His activity toward her are familial in nature. He seems to be bringing her into the social or familial framework and welcoming her with hospitality, this concept that says a lover of strangers. Isn't it interesting how, and this is something that uh, you, I think you hit the nail right on the head, is that she's an outsider and from a well, from a law standpoint, of, of the foreigner and especially a Moabite person was not included in the covenant privileges, the covenant, you know, the, the, the laws of the covenant. They're excluded from, from the worship. But he is extending her a kindness in welcoming her because he sees something different about, though her background physically is that she's from Moab, Spiritually, she's already decided to follow God, Yahweh. And 
he recognizes her not as as a foreigner, but as somebody that is already a follower of God. She's already entrusting herself not only to Naomi, but to Naomi's God, right? Yes. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She's already entrusting herself to to that God. Though Naomi is bitter at that God when they come back, Ruth doesn't have that bitterness. And she's entrusting herself to to this God that somehow guides her into, and she doesn't know who this Boaz is yet, but this kindness that she begins to see through Boaz, and she's shocked at, it's all from God. I think therein lay another essential point, John. Sure. And that is, this hospitality is not distinct from Torah observance, nor is it distinct from... um, Yahwehism. Now, I want to be careful in, in, because... In English. Yes. Repeat that. I'll clarify. In the ancient Near East, even in the Code of Hammurabi, there was a a hospitality code. Right. We see this code grossly broken and challenged in Genesis 19. Um, uh, this is one of the things in extrapolation or in explanation that is said in Ezekiel about the Sodomites, uh, that, that they were inhospitable. That is not their only sin, but that in fact, not only before God, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture and still in Eastern Asiatic cultures, inhospitality is uh, a gross breakage of the honor-shame code societally. But there is something distinct about this that is not just um, fitted nicely in the framework of an ancient Near Eastern codification of hospitableness, as it were. Boaz seems to be alive with Torah. Uh, He seems to not just be doing things because he's a quote-unquote nice poison, right? Right. Because he's a nice guy, (laughs) as it were. Right. He seems to be doing this because Torah truth uh, is alive, well, and functional in this man. And he takes seriously uh, the truths of Scripture, uh, albeit scripture for them at this particular point is is uh, consisting of Genesis through Deuteronomy and the historicity of Joshua, and they are in the wake of the realization of the judges' events. But for him, he takes very seriously the truths of Leviticus and the Deuteronomistic truths. As such, his actions are not just simply societal actions. They are not just simply uh, kind actions. They are actions of a man who takes God seriously and who is dependent upon God in order to illustrate the character of God. Because remember, Torah is an articulation in action form of the character of I am. You know, it's, it's funny because I, I envision that if the Pharisees had lived in this time period, which they did not, if the Pharisees had lived in the time period of Ruth, I had imagined that they would have objected to Boaz. They would have said, you're not supposed to do this to this Moabite person because you know, the Torah, the De- Deuteronomy says that no Moabite person shall be included in the assembly and she's a Moabite and you should not do this for her. 
and imagine that like like Jesus, you know, and and Boaz, who has who is a descendant of was a forefather of Christ, um, would quote him, perhaps quote uh, Proverbs where it talks about if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to to drink, you know, to take care of. That the Torah, the observant person, isn't so minutially involved in what he can not do or do or not do for the benefit of himself, Torah, the, the person who's Torah observant realizes that a person, a person's life is more important than where, they're from, where, they're, where their background's from. In other words, the kindness that he shows to her, he should show to her even if she was an Israelite or an Ammonite or a Moabite or somebody from some other place, that the kindness you show to one person should be the same for all peoples. Mm-hmm. In other words, he should not be saying, well, are you, are you Israelite? Show me your card. Oh, okay, then I'll show you kindness. It's almost like sometimes when you, when you, are, you act a certain way with people, they are Christian, right? You get into your little Christian cliques, you know, and you go to church and, and you say, greet each other a certain way. And you say, bless you, brother, brother, sister, you know, and you, and you are kind. And you, you, you put down the face, and you put on the act. But then you go to work and you're surrounded by non-Christians and you treat them, you don't treat them well. Well, you shouldn't, that's, as Boaz would do, he would treat both kinds the same. If you treat the unbeliever like you would treat another fellow believer, it should, it should be the same is what I'm trying to say. And that's the kind of character that Boaz has. And that's what God calls us to do as, as Christians is to not be respectful of persons, is not to say, well, I'm going to put on this hat for these people and act a certain way and treat these people a certain way. And then when I'm around these other people, I'm going to treat them a different way. No, God calls us to love one another, right? By, by the way, John, this, their activity in Torah yeah. towards strangers sprang directly out of how they were maltreated in Egypt. You were yes. slaves in Egypt That's and you were exactly. mistreated. So I want you to be certain that you treat people correctly. By the way, for for messianic believers or for Christians as it were, this is part of the beatific homily that we don't look for people who do well to us to do well to them right. or who have to give to us in order to give to them. Um, in, in other words, we are not doing what we are doing out of reaction, right? We are doing it proactively because God, in His kindness, has graced us with the capacity, the wherewithal, and the means by which to articulate His good character within the framework of relationship. And, and that brings up another point. And this is obviously we're looking at Boaz right now. We'll get to to, to Ruth and her reaction. Is that tells us a lot of Bo- about Boaz as well? And a, a practical thing you just brought up is giving without expectation of receiving. In other words, how can she possibly pay him back? You know, sometimes you're, you're, you give to people with the hope that maybe, okay, maybe they'll return the favor. God shows us kindness every day and knows this, there's no possible way in eternity of us being able to pay God back at all. Boaz shows her kindness, un expected kindness and and she calls it favor and uh, we'll look at that word in a second and there's no way that she can actually repay him but he doesn't do that that's not his motivation his not a motivation is well i'll do this for her because well maybe i'll get something in return because that's not how that's not what it's about 
It's not about what you get back. It's about really what you give. And so his character speaks volumes in that sense. This is unheard of because you know, think about think about the un, unusualness of Bo, of a person named Boaz or like Boaz in the time of the judges or even in today's in today's society. Uh, most people in our in our country in our society we do things for other people, hoping that they would re- return. And that's how we that's how society is. And it's unusual when somebody does something that's kind with no strings attached. There's no fine print. People say, what, what gives? What's the catch? And we say, no, just God loves you. I point out, John, because I love your point. I now undertake an effort to point out the Hebrew. Uh, matzati chain, yes. Yes. right? It, she says in verse 10, now we're still in verse 9, but she says this in verse 10. She says, matzati chain. Yes. Now, in other words, why have I found favor? Did you find matzah in your pantry? <laughs> <laughs> I, I found that. Go on. Now, here's the thing. The, the term, the phrase, consists of a question. Right. Ma. ma. And then matzah, to, to find, find, right? And then chain, favor. favor. Grace. Now, that's important. Right. Okay, so there's an aspect because to find here is the equivalent of the Americanized idiomatic phrase Eureka. In other words, it's shocking. Uh, it, it's, it's surprising in every way. What did he give her to answer your question directly? He gave her something that she didn't request. Right. She hadn't expected. She hadn't worked for she could not have earned. He absolutely shocked her, shocked her. And, and, and this is the point on a, on a sociological framework, the grace of God given to us should be so articulated and expressed to us that it should be shocking to whoever encounters it. Right. It should be something that they don't expect. Listen, I, I love this whole concept because this is the best that secularists can do. Pay it forward. Really? Right. And I'm I'm glad because that is an expression of providential grace articulated in fallen man's heart to pay it forward. That's good. And that has seasons, right? We find out somebody did somebody at something at Starbucks. Then we say, okay, would you like to join the pay it forward? Or we find out on News Channel 5 somebody did that in gas. Would you like to pay it forward? Right. But Christians don't come into this casually, incidentally, accidentally, haphazardly, or on occasion or seasonally. In other words, we don't wait for Christmas to be good to believers, nor to be good to people. We ought to be the shocking factors that God has placed within the framework of the planet. We ought to be the people who are always looking for an opportunity to shock others with gifts from heaven. Can you imagine, I'm just just going to tag along with this, can you imagine if there were other ladies or people like Ruth and she goes back into town and tells them what happened. You know there's going to be a long line of people wanting to glean at his field because they want to be a person just like Boaz because they realize there's something different about him. You're going to get treated well. He's going to bless you because of his kindness and his goodness. It's not, it's not, um, it's not, it's not usual to find that, but that's what attracts people, you know? I mean, now we're going to skip over forward to the New Testament. Paul says to adorn the gospel of God, right? In a certain way, in, in what um, there's a Titus say, so uh, make 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 yourself uh, make the gospel of God attractive 
so that people will want what you have, okay? Will want the kind of Jesus that you're giving, the kind of love that knows no conditions, no expectations, no strings attached, that that elevates the person. You know, as funny as is that um, I was... Um, at home talking about this with, with, with my wife and she asked the question that was, that was really profound on, on the, the Ruth's reaction. We've been talking about Boaz's uh, initiative, now Boaz, uh, Ruth's reaction and how she reacts to this. And her question was, to the, I think if I remember correctly, her, re, her, her question was, how did she receive it? Hmm. Because sometimes it's hard for us to know how to receive that. We, we want to look for the fine print and say, okay, what gives? I don't really trust this. This is not true. This can't be, this can't be possible. How can somebody be so kind to me? I'm, I'm, look, look, I don't deserve this. She, 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 I, I love that because Sharon is insightful with, with her queries. Uh, uh, he, here's one of the things that I think is, is explanative of not only the matzati, but the word that, that explains what she's shocked by, what she's found, is favor. Right. This idea of favor is 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 this concept of something that is not deserved, not expected, is not earned, can never be earned. Right. And in fact, there's no anticipation for it to ever be paid back. Right. That's the truth. Right. She is shocked by a gift from this man that she doesn't expect, that she hasn't asked for, that she has not earned, that she will never be able to earn, and he will never request it back from her. Now, how do you react to that? Now, it's important for us to think larger context. This word is the same kind of word that is depicted in Genesis 6. Right. When Noah Noah finds I'm shocked that out of all of the people you're going to let live, out of all the people who you're going to rescue from this deluge, out of all the people who are going to see the positive side of redemption and not the negative side of redemption, you're going to allow me, my wife, my sons and their wives, listen, what's on the stake, to live? But isn't now just we're going the same phrase is used in, in in Genesis six and other places as far as this favor that's bestowed. The reaction tells everything, though, because think about it, as Americans. Let's just think about our society as Americans. We think we deserve everything, right? Yes, we're entitled. Quite. We are entitled. I'm entitled to to this, that, and the other. I'm entitled to free this, uh, healthcare, whatever. I'm entitled to everything. Okay, how do you teach grace to a society that thinks they're already entitled to everything you have? In other words, the reaction of of Ruth typifies the proper reaction of somebody who knows, I don't deserve anything. Right. Uh, I deserve to be outcast. I deserve uh, to glean where there's there's nothing left. I don't deserve this. And so the person who is in that position who realizes, I really don't deserve this. Now they have a choice. I will accept it or I will bemoan the fact that I don't deserve this and still refuse it. 
So you have a choice. The person who says, I don't deserve it, and yet receives it, that's the place where, 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 the, where the person needs to be to really appreciate the grace of God. The person who says, well, I deserve this anyway. This is nothing special. I'm, I, I deserve, you know, it's like the, these, uh, these contestants who come on um, these, these uh, singing shows, you know, American Idol and others, and they think they're great. You know, I deserve to win because I am the best. And, well, they haven't really been, they, they don't have that humility. They don't have that, uh, they're, they think they deserve something they have not even attained to. God wants to give something that you and I can never attain to one thing that we did not yes. deserve. We don't, des- we deserve reality and, and, and we don't deserve to go to heaven. Let's just be, a, let's be, there's no way we can go to heaven without the grace of God. And as Christians, and we look at what God has done for, for us in Christ, our reaction ought to be the same as Ruth. Who am I that Jesus would do, that God would do such a wonderful thing for me? And receive that and say, okay, I, I understand. I don't deserve this, but thank you. Thank you. Wow. I mean, that's, that to me is the reaction. That tells me the, the heart of the person that, that's ripe for the gospel. It's ripe for receiving and understanding the grace of God because they already understand. Yes. Yes. I, 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 I love where you're going with that, John, because I think the Hebrew is so expressive in that area. A literal reading, vatipol al paniha vatishtahu artsa. Now, this is important because then... Wait, can you translate what then she reading? fell on her yes. face and bowed herself. Now, if, if we were doing the this... response. Yes. Yes. It, it, it assumes a positioning first. The position is not standing eye to eye with the individual who is your benefactor or the grantor of grace and saying eye to eye, why thank you. Why, I, I deserve that. Right, like it's about time. It's about time that you did that for me because I am the queen here. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's not her position. Her position is in fact, and, and by the way, this phraseology is quite true to the culture. In other words, and, and, and let me say, this is not misogynistic. This is not anti-woman. Uh, uh, this, is, this is something that would have been done both by ladies and gentlemen. Scripture is replete with this kind of behavior. In fact, it is part of the cultic responsibility of Yisrael in Leviticus. They fall down to worship. Well, well let's, let's, just, let's just translate the word you read there that, that says that she fell down on her face to the ground. It's literally, it's literally the word for worship. That's correct. In fact, worship isn't what we think. We think worship is, I don't know, dancing around or whatever it is. But here, the word is actually falling on your face. It's a response to something that has been done. She is responding with her whole body, with her whole, with her whole gesture, and realizing that somebody greater than her yes. has bestowed on her a privilege a gift, a grace that she did not deserve or expect. And she properly acknowledges that by saying, you're greater than I, I am lesser, but yet I receive that. And that's worship. Worship is acknowledging that this, this person has been kind to you. 
Yes. This, this God has been kind to you. And there's a placing of the face on the ground. Yes. And then a bowing for honor, for reverence, for respect, for appreciation, for, for adulation, for right. praise, for, for recognition, for thanksgiving, a sort of, a sort of, of, of recognition that is braggadocious because individuals about her could have immediately seen her prostrated, her, her uh, uh, prostrated, uh, prostrated position, her lowered position. And so they would have recognized in the culture, that's a woman honoring him. Now they right. may not have been able to overhear what was going on, but they could see physiologically honor is taking place. But isn't it significant though, that if a person, if she were of the type that said, if she were, you know, a and let's say she lived in America today and she had this attitude of, I, well, of course I deserve, well, it's about time. I deserve it. She would not have bowed down. She would not have prostrated or worshiped or given a response of gratitude, thanksgiving, honor, and awe to, to this person. So, so, so then if we put this together mathematically, yes. right? What is two plus two equal? When God, the first portion, when God does something for you that shocks you, something that you know you didn't ask for, right? something that you know you could not have earned, something that you know you could not pay back, something in fact that he'll never ask you to pay back. When the formula of that awe, shocking, inspiring act from divinity is done, What's the appropriate response positionally? Right. It is to immediately lower oneself in recognition, in appreciation, in gratitude, admitting, I am so unworthy of that. I am so much less than what you've expressed toward me. And I want to make it clear for those who are overhearing your grace and overseeing, that's not a word, uh, 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 that's overseeing is a word, but now I am coining an idea, putting two words together, not oversight, right. but people who are kind of uh, looking in on, right. as it were, right. that's the definition that I am now employing to this. For people who cannot necessarily, who don't know your testimony in privacy, who don't know what God did for you, they ought to be able to see from your life, even if they're looking from afar in the field and say, now there's a person who is reverential, who is honoring, who is respectful, who is adoring, who is in awe, who is in appreciation. Why are you in that level of appreciation? Because God has done something that just shocked me and it should rivet into shocks about me. This makes me think of the, the prodigal son story where you have the two brothers, one who comes home knowing what he's done thinking he's he's ready to he's pl he's planning on just becoming a hired hand hey he's he's gone through the speech he's wasted the money he's embarrassed his family he's embarrassed his dad dishonored his family and he's just thinking i hope my dad just gives me a job i'll, I'll be satisfied that he is he's low in one sense and yet God's raised, God raises him up, or his, his dad raises him up and celebrates the fact that he's come home and there's a great celebration. But then you have the other son, the other brother, who has no appreciation for what he's had all along. His idea is he didn't earn this. Right. But all along, his dad says, well, you could have had a party any time. All that I have is yours. 
here is this this older brother who in his mind has never never gone astray but never appreciated or acknowledged the goodness that has come his way from his dad his response is one of closed-hearted bitterness and anger towards his dad and his brother the son of yours that he says to right. his to his dad has has wasted your money and you're going to throw a party for him there's a dichotomy there of the heart because that in actual fact both sons ought to recognize or should have recognized the 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 grace and the the kindness that their own father showed them in in what they had as as far as uh, the privilege that they had, and and the older son didn't respond. So you had the dichotomy of the responses. One was ready, was just empty. One was just brought really low. The the prodigal, the wasteful son, was not ready for this, but was raised up in the sense that he was encouraged because he was ready for that. The other son, though, thought he, thought he thought he was already high in his own eyes. And didn't respond or receive. He's the one who's outside pouting and folding his hands and wondering why there's such celebration. There's a dichotomy there, the kind of heart that does this. And I'm going back to Ruth where the kind of person, the kind of heart that responds to the goodness that God has shown to us. So what you've spoken to is I, I articulated first the position. Right. You've articulated the disposition. Sure. That internal aspect of gratitude. So this is what's important because for people who are expressive, right? What about the heart? Right. And for people who are um, reverential in heart, what about the expression? Right. You see the two go together. Right. The two really do go together. That there ought to be something that God has done that shocks you by grace. Right. But then there ought to be a position that says, hey, listen, I'm not too big in my britches right. to give thanksgiving to God. Why am I doing this external activity? Because internally, right. I can't get low enough. I'm thankful. It's like it's like, and what you're saying is there's there should be a match of the disposition with the of the heart with the outward expression thereof. Right? If somebody a, a, a dad uh, is at the hospital and his wife has just given birth to their firstborn. I should hope the gratitude and joy would fill his heart so much so that he is he is ecstatic. Wow, I've got a son or I've got a daughter, you know, and he's he's excited because of the good thing that has happened to his life. In his heart he might he, he might say, "Yeah, I'm I'm celebrating I'm I'm celebrating the birth of my child, but I'm just celebrating on the inside." No, 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 no. What's inside has to come out, you know? And if there's a disposition of gratitude, that ought to reflect in outward expression of that gratitude, whatever that may feel like. Here, here, here's this, here's this woman who goes back to Naomi with her bosom full, her her basket full, so to speak, of barley, and expresses, "Oh my goodness, what did you get this from?" The same thing with the woman at the well who goes back and says, "Take and listen. Here's this man who you told me everything ever I ever did," and she's excited about that. My whole, my, all my past, all my crazy past, she found something and she expressed that gratitude of what he did, he did to touch her. You know, I pray something for our listeners. I pray that you will run into the hand of God and a man or woman who's in God's hands 
who will shock you with good from the throne of God, will shock you with something that you didn't ask for, that you couldn't even think about, that you know you couldn't earn, you know you do not deserve, something that you could never earn and they'll never ask you to pay back. And my prayer is, when you receive that good grace from God as articulated through a man or woman of God, that you will have an internal disposition of self-lowering. Self-lowering that is not demeaning but is gratuitous with thanksgiving. And that you will have an external showing so that others observing your life can say, there is a man or a woman full of reverence and appreciation for the shocking grace, goodness, and kindness of God articulated and expressed through a biblically observant believer. I pray that for you. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Core and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.